hello, this is Lawrence, and today on my podcast, I'll be talking with Aubrey DeGray, a member of the SINS Research Foundation out of California, who is doing some radical research into anti-aging and uh, restorative therapies that he believes will have people living thousands of years as soon as the year 2035. Like when I, when I was talking to people here about, you know, I'm going to interview you, they, they hadn't heard of you. Um, and they said, oh, you know, this guy is talking about anti-aging, about living forever. And probably I would say seven out of eight people I talked to said, oh, well, why, why would I want to live forever? So what, what would be the point of that? All my relatives would die. Um, what, why would I want to live forever? So I guess I could ask you that question. Why, why do you or why should people care about anti-aging technology? Okay. Okay. So I used to be in the habit of actually giving sincere, direct answers to questions like that. But I've learned more. So what I'm going to do instead is ask you to give your answer. Well, I think what, what I would want to live forever, I, I didn't say I didn't want to live forever. Um, That's is, right. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah, more, what would you have said to that? I, I, I think what you said in your documentary was very compelling, that we kind of accept this tyranny that we're going to get old and tortured to death, basically, because uh, we had a friend who recently died of, um, I believe it was bowel cancer. I'm not sure which cancer, but it was an absolutely horrific death. I mean, she had blisters in her throat, was choking on pus, and, and this is this is a woman who had four children and was a very active person, and to accept this sort of tyranny or, or this torture at the end of your life is a terrible thing. Now, whether that would translate to like living forever, I'm not sure. But I think that is a very compelling case for this this type of research. Would be my answer to that. Yeah. Okay. So, did you say that to the to your friends? You no. No. Said? No. I didn't say Why that. I didn't. Well, I didn't have that point of view. I've actually gotten that point of view from reading uh, your work. Um, I guess the typical answer that people would give to me would say, "Oh, well, people, if you live forever, then we're going to overcrowd the planet, and it's narcissistic. And why don't why not give other people a chance?" to live. And so I don't really have an answer to that, but, but. All right. So in a nutshell, the problem here, the reason why people are so screwed up about this is because they have been able to lull themselves into a completely idiotic understanding of what the proposal actually is. They think of it all in terms of longevity, and they don't think of it in terms of avoidance of the diseases and disabilities of old age. So I end up needing these days to get really pretty aggressive in correcting that, in telling people to get a grip and to remember that I don't work on longevity at all. I do not work on longevity, I work on health. And any longevity benefits that might arise as a consequence of my work are a side effect, pure and simple. So what I say to people who say stupid things like the sort of things you're reporting is, I say, do you want to get Alzheimer's disease? They tend to have difficulty thinking that, yes, they want to get Alzheimer's. Then I ask a slightly harder question. I say, would you like to get Alzheimer's disease at the age of 100? And they're not too keen on that either. And they'll say, but, but, oh dear, that's not that same thing, is it? And I'll say, yes, dear, it is the same thing. The fact is, it's the same thing. 
the way that we've got into this crazy situation in terms of the attitudes to work like we're doing at Sense Research Foundation is because we have allowed ourselves to believe that there is some distinction, some Chinese wall between, on the one hand, the diseases of old age, like Alzheimer's or cancer or atherosclerosis or osteoporosis, and on the other hand, aging itself, which of course goes conveniently undefined, but essentially means everything that we don't give disease names to. Now, that is a distinction based entirely in semantics, in terminology. It is a non-biological distinction, which means that it should not be determining our attitudes to desirability. If we don't want to get sick in old age, then we'd better just accept that not getting sick entails not having as high a risk of dying in any given year, and, and that means mathematically it entails having a chance, being likely, in fact, to live longer than we currently would, maybe much longer. And if that's not a problem, then you shouldn't say it's a problem. And if it is a problem, then you shouldn't say you don't want to get Alzheimer's disease. Right. Do you do you think, though, that for maybe as a, a race, the human race, we'd have to really have a fundamental shift, though, in our psychology for this research to, I guess, gain access to a wider uh, spectrum of people? Like I call the Jesus problem. Like if almost no, we don't... <clears throat> No, we do not need any kind of shift in our psychology. We just need a shift in our expectation. The fundamental basis, the fulcrum of all of this is one single thing, namely fear of getting one's hopes up. Certainty of a bad thing is a far more comfortable state of mind than uncertainty about the bad thing. If you think that there's a small but non-trivial chance that the bad thing won't happen, then it preoccupies you. It plays on your nerves. It pisses you off. And people don't like that. Most people are too cowardly to, to handle the idea that this might or might not be in time for them. And therefore, they pretend that it's definitely not going to happen anywhere near in time for them. And they come up with all manner of reasons why they shouldn't even think about it and even listen to whether it, the science is actually moving rather rapidly. Mm. Um, we'll get to how rapidly it's moving in a second because I'd like to. So, ask... so I, I hadn't quite finished my answer. The oh, sorry. Key point to answer your to answer your question directly: Do we need a change of psychology? The answer is no. Once we get to the point where the, the expert scientific consensus, the publicly stated expert scientific consensus, is that yes, this is going to happen, and it's probably going to happen fairly soon, then the problem of getting one's hopes up goes away. And you will see the most absolute pandemonium in society the day that happens. It's going to happen suddenly. There will be one particular breakthrough. I don't know exactly what breakthrough it's going to be, but there will be a very sharp tipping point that will cause this to happen. And the shit will really hit the fan that day. Well, I guess this kind of ties into psychology. Um, I'm from. I'm originally from Kentucky. I don't live there anymore. But Kentucky has a long history of, you know, enlightened ideals. Um, so bourbon, bourbon, yes, exactly, bourbon and horses, and um, but you know, what, when I talk about psychology, when these drugs become available, what would prevent them from only being uh, available to sort of the upper class or the wealthy people? Could is this something that would just be priced out for certain people, like a certain class of people? We'll get to live a long time while you'll have the other classes who can't afford the drugs. There's not, there's not the faintest chance of that. 
These drugs will be available, like drugs, these medicines will be available to absolutely everybody who's old enough to need them almost instantly after they become available to anybody. And the reason I can say that is not because of some kind of idealistic humanitarian you know, utopianism at all. It's pure mercenary economics. These therapies will pay for themselves from the point of view of the nation, the government, in absolutely no time, simply because they will keep people able-bodied. They will keep people in a state where, A, they do not need these fantastically expensive therapies that we have today that very modestly postpone the death of people who are in a bad state of health, because people won't get into that state of health in the first place. And second of all, they will keep people in a state where they are able to continue to contribute wealth to society, rather than just consuming wealth and dragging down their kids who are less productive because they're having to look after their sick parents and so on. This is going to be economically absolutely unequivocal. And that means that it would be completely suicidal for any country not to make these things available free at the point of delivery if necessary, even in a really tax-averse country like the USA, simply because otherwise the country is going to go bankrupt because it's going to be so much less prosperous, so much less economically viable than countries that are doing that. So basically people like you, there'll be a complete fundamental change in, in retirement ages and prison sentences for people. Like that'd have to be a complete fundamental change of, of the organizing of society though, would it not? Pretty much, yeah. Though, of course, one does have to bear in mind that many of the changes we might envisage will already have occurred as a result of other changes in technology. You know, if we talk about retirement, we're talking about something that's a minimum of 20 years away now. Right? Now, mm. if we talk about retirement, we've got to take into account, therefore, all of the progress that will have occurred in automation between now, in the next 20 years, before this comes along. And that progress is going extraordinarily rapidly now. So by 20 years from now, we may not have a concept of retirement anymore at all. You know, jobs may not really exist in the sense that we know them today. Okay. And another kind of question I want to, want to get on is with these these drugs, like, because I read an article from you where they interviewed you in the New Statesman recently, and, they, and you said, "Oh, with calor- caloric restrictions, people can live quite a bit longer already." Would I you- certainly didn't say that. Did you not say that? Maybe yeah. I got that confused. No, goodness me, no, because it's not true. Um, okay, well, I'm sorry about that. With calorie restriction, mice and rats can live quite a bit longer than they could otherwise, but longer-lived organisms get progressively less benefit from calorie restriction. Dogs get only like 10% increase, whereas mice get 40 or 50%. Um, monkeys get hardly anything. Humans probably won't get anything at all. Okay. Well, that was My question basically was, with these drugs, would there be you know, a certain diminishing of the quality of life, the return of the quality of life? You, know, <clears throat> you can only go in the sun eight minutes a day. You can only – no coffee, no, no the, the joys of life, like a very regimented – yeah, there's absolutely no reason to believe that there would be any diminution of the quality of life, any lifestyle restrictions that would need to be applied, other than, of course, periodically going in and getting these rejuvenation therapies. Um, now, in fact, it would, to some extent, be the other way around. There would be some things that today are bad for you and, are, and one would recommend avoiding in order to maximize one's chance of being around in time for these therapies when they do come along, you know, whether, like, whether it may be going to McDonald's every day or smoking, and these things would be less problematic than they are today. Now, I'd like to get a little bit into more of the, of the science of what we're talking about. Like I, I watched your documentary over the weekend or the documentary about you, 
And so for people who might be listening to this going, oh, anti-aging, what, what exactly does that entail? Like, um, so how are you going to prevent aging? I guess like you could talk about the telomere problem or what is your research showing us? All right. So before my um, arrival on the scene, there was pretty much a consensus that the way to go about postponing aging in humans would be to emulate what we see and extrapolate from what we see in nature. We see in nature, obviously, a large spectrum of rates of aging between different species. Even within a species, we see a significant difference, a significant range. And furthermore, we have things like calorie restriction that seem to be fairly good, at least in short-lived species, at making a difference to how rapidly an organism ages. But the issue is whether that can, in fact, translate into significantly beneficial therapeutic interventions. And to be honest, things have not been looking very good. That has not actually occurred. So what happened 15 years ago was that I proposed for the first time that actually we should not be looking at trying to slow aging down by emulating nature. What emulating nature means, really, is reducing the rate at which the body creates damage to itself as a side effect of its normal operation, as a side effect of metabolism. And I said, maybe we should intervene a step, one step down the road from there. Not, not all the way down the road. All the way down the road is what geriatric medicine is, directly attacking the diseases and disabilities of old age as if they were like infections, trying to cure them. And I mentioned earlier on in the interview that that's actually completely idiotic. It's not just hopeless, it's just idiotically hopeless. Um, but a, a middle ground between the two is to go in and try to repair the molecular and cellular damage that the body is doing to itself throughout life before it gets to the level of abundance that causes that damage to um, become pathogenic, to actually um, impair our physical and mental function. And that's what SENSE is all about. We are working on the basis of a classification of types of damage that I put forward 15 years ago into seven major categories. These categories are useful because within each category there is a generic therapy that can be applied to it, of course with differences of detail between different examples, different instances of the therapy, but still with basically the same idea. And those therapies will actually not just slow down the accumulation of damage, they will genuinely eliminate some or most of the damage. That's what we do. Okay. Could you maybe briefly describe exactly what SENS is, for those who may not know? I basically just did describe what SENS yeah. is. SENS is the damage repair approach, the divide and oh, conquer sorry. damage repair approach to combating aging. No, I meant so, the, oh, sorry, the research foundation, like how that came okay, about. So, sorry. Sure, sure. So the concept of SANS was something that came to me in 2000, and I developed and promoted it over a number of years. Uh, In about 2003, 2003, um, I created, jointly with a businessman from Virginia, a foundation called the Methuselah Foundation, which was designed to promote this work, to actually get people interested to raise the profile of longevity research. And this involved... Um, using prizes, actually. We didn't have any money to speak of, so we tried to bring money in by creating a prize competition for mouse longevity and getting people to contribute to the prize fund. 
Eventually, after some years, that was quite successful, and we were able to start doing research, actually funding our own research projects. And then in 2009, we actually split the foundation into two parts, with one of them, the Methuselah Foundation, reverting to being mainly centred on prizes, and the other one, the Sense Research Foundation, being focused on the actual research project. And so I'm the Chief Science Officer of Sense Research Foundation now, and Dave Goebel, the businessman I mentioned, still runs Methuselah Foundation. Okay. Um, when you were earlier in the interview, we talked about people kind of are in denial about this, or they don't want, they don't, it's not going to be there for them. How close are we to actually making some, some progress, like having viable uh, anti-aging medicines or therapies, as you call it, for everybody? The goal of actually developing these therapies that really work comprehensively for humans is still quite a long way away, which means, of course, that any prediction about exactly how long away, away, how far away it is, is extremely speculative. But nevertheless, I feel that people like myself have a duty to go out there and actually give our best guess, even though we have to emphasize how speculative it is, because it's going to be a better guess than what you'd come up with on your own. And the guessing question is, I think we've got a 50% chance or thereabouts of developing these therapies to a comprehensive, decisive level of, of effectiveness by about 20 or 25 years from now. I think there's at least a 10% chance that it could take 100 years if we hit a whole bunch of new problems that we haven't found yet. But so what, really? You know, a 50% chance is quite enough to be worth fighting for. I don't think we have any realistic chance of getting there in less than, 10 or, less than 15 or 20 years. But that's, that's where we are. Furthermore, I think that we have a very good chance of reaching a level of progress in the laboratory, especially in treating mice, that is decisive in terms of public opinion, in terms of scientific opinion and then public opinion, uh, within six to eight years from now. In other words, a lot sooner. And that's when the real action is going to happen. That's when people are going to start insisting that their elected representatives have a war on aging and plow enormous amounts of money into the training of medical personnel and the building of infrastructure and so on, so as to make sure that these therapies are both developed and disseminated as quickly as possible. So let's, let's say it's the year 2035. It's all gone well. Your predictions are correct. Um, the anti-aging medicine is available, but you mentioned oftentimes uh, therapies. So if I'm 50 and I'm going to start taking anti-aging medicines, what will that look like? Will, will the therapy will it be pills? Will it be certain sort of restorative treatments? What, what exactly do you envision for this? Yeah, I don't expect that it will actually be all that different in terms of the mode of administration from the kinds of things we see today. I'm guessing that most of it will be done by injections because there will be a lot of stem cell therapies involved and most of those are, are done by injecting the cells into the circulation and having them go to the place they're needed. And also there will be a bunch of gene therapies involved where we engineer viruses to carry particular DNA that's beneficial to cells and the viruses are injected into the circulation and they find their way into our cells. Um, there will also be vaccines, which are sometimes injected, of course, and also um, some pharmaceuticals, I think that's quite likely as well. It's going to be you know, a range of different things. So really the big difference is from what's conventional in medicine today will be two things. First of all, there will be a lot of things being done to the same people at the same time. It will be very much a divide and conquer combination therapy. And the second thing is that it will be preventative. These will be treatments that are given to people who are not yet sick. 
And of course, preventative medicine is relatively a backwater. You know, very few really successful preventative medicines today. Right. Um, how would you describe your um, how other academics or other scientists embrace your research? Huh. Well, that has certainly evolved over time. <clears throat> when I first put forward the idea of sense, nobody understood a word that I was saying, and when they did understand it, they ignored it because it scared, scared them. They didn't really want anything to do with it because it was too unfamiliar to them. There were only a few enlightened gerontologists who saw past that and saw that I was saying something new and valuable. And certainly over the first few years that I was putting this forward, there was a lot of initially off the record and eventually on the record opposition and, and um, you know, denigration and dismissal of this idea, <coughs> which I was always sure was based purely on ignorance, on failing to understand what I was saying or simple lack of knowledge of the established published experimental work that I was basing it on. Um, but it took a while for me to actually demonstrate that by getting people to spell out in print what their objections were so that I could actually rebut them. But that was very successful indeed in the mid-2000s, 10 years ago. And so now we've pretty much finished that process. Now the whole concept of a divide-and-conquer damage-repair approach is really orthodox. A couple of years ago, the paper came out in a very prominent journal, General Cell, um, which essentially just completely reinvented sense. It just said exactly the same thing. It made a few mistakes. It wasn't nearly as comprehensive and, and well-rounded as what we've been saying for the past, you know, for previous 10 years, but it was the same concept. And the thing is, that paper was said in the right place by the right people, people with all the right credentials and mainstream authority and so on, and even though it didn't cite my work at all, I'm delighted because the fact is it's being cited. It's actually being acknowledged as the best statement yet of where people think we're going in terms of actually doing something about aging. So from my point of view, the battle has been won in terms of the scientific community. There are certainly still a number of people out there who are terribly... Um, you know, scared by the longevity consequences that I pointed out, that we're likely to be able to get people to live an awfully long time if we pull this off. But most people have got over that. They've realized that it's just, it's, it's just embarrassingly naive to worry about that and to dismiss this perfectly good science on that illegitimate basis. Um, when you talk about living a long time, how, what would you project the, the lifespan would be if, this, if everything goes... Mm -hmm. 100% according to plan, as or perfect capital right. mobility, as they say in economics. Yeah, so of course we cannot make such a prediction because how long people are going to live will depend on the progress that we make not only against aging, but against all other causes of death. If we make the completely arbitrary assumption that we eliminate aging entirely and we don't change anything else, so people's risk of death at any given age from, let's say, car accidents or asteroids or whatever is exactly what it is today, and that stays that way forever, then you can make a calculation based on existing data, existing statistics. And it'll come out around a couple of thousand years average lifespan. But, of course, that's a completely stupid prediction because everything is going to change. We're already building safer cars and trying to develop vaccines more rapidly to avoid pandemics and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, 
Real quickly, before we get off here, there's a quote in the uh, documentary, The Immortalist, that I watched this weekend, and I, I wanted to ask you about this, and that is uh, somebody said that you have an amazing secret, and the secret is to, to uh, be able to drink a lot and remember a lot of science. So I'd like to know what any advice you could give to us students here about drinking a lot and remembering a lot of science. It always strikes me as remarkable how depressingly abstemious Americans tend to be. But the fact is, I don't drink all that much. I drink more than the average American, probably. And I actually drink proper beer at a proper temperature. But I'm perfectly average for, an, for, a, for a Brit. Okay, no problem. That was just kind of a funny question. Um, just so you know, I'm also half Australian. I'm not complete American, so I understand... Per- perfect beer at the perfect temperature. Um, I don't think you do, no. I don't think Australians are any better than Americans in terms of the quality of beer and the temperature, even though they may be better at the quantity. <laughs> no worries. Well, I want to thank you uh, for your time, Aubrey. And, um, My pleasure. And also, if there's anything where we can find you on the internet or where we can find your, any more about your research for our listeners who are interested in what you have to say. Yeah, totally. Go to science.org. It's our website. S for sugar, E for elephant, N for November, S for sugar, dot O-R-G. And there's a nice, big, friendly donate button at the top of the page. We also have a conference coming up this week. So anyone who's actually in the Bay Area or can be in the Bay Area and who wants to find out a lot more about this, this is the time to come, come here, right next to SFO, San Francisco Airport. And we'd love to see you. All right. Thanks a lot. And uh, just on a personal level, I don't know if I'll keep this in the podcast. Uh, I'm back at university. I'm, a, I guess, a mature age student. And when I watched uh, the debate on the documentary last night, I really just want to say I'm really happy that like people like you are out there making research and making the world more colorful because I really feel that like I'm really disappointed about how stuffy and conservative and how fundamentally boring so much of the research is going on at university. So I appreciate that people like you are out there. You know. Well, well, you're very kind. Thanks for doing the interview. Yeah, no worries. Have a-